Let's just pray something like that as we're about to see. Exodus chapter 32 verses 21 through 35 is the sermon text. Again, uh, I had thought we could take the golden calf in one uh, sermon, but it, it very clearly and actually neatly divided itself into two. And so we're looking now at the aftermath of the golden calf. He's destroyed it. He's grounded into dust. He's made them drink it. And then here's what we read. Moses And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? So Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord become hot. You know the people that they're set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods that shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us, Out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let them break it off. So they gave it to me and I cast it into the fire and this calf came out. Now, when when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among their enemies, then Moses stood at the entrance in the entrance of the camp and said, whoever's on the Lord's side, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together to him. And he said to them, thus says the Lord God of Israel, let every man put his sword on his side and go in and out from the entrance to the entrance uh, throughout the camp. And let every man kill his brother and every man, uh, his companion and every man, his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, that he may bestow on you a blessing this day for every man as opposed to his son and his brother. Now it came to pass on the next day that Moses said to the people, You've committed a great sin, so now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Then Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, These people have committed a great sin and have made for themselves a God of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, I pray, blot me out of your book, which you have written. And the Lord said to Moses, whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. Now, therefore, go lead the people to the place of which I've spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit for punishment, I will visit punishment upon them for their sins. So the Lord plagued the people. Because of what they did with the calf which Aaron made. And let us pray. Gracious Father in heaven, we ask you again. Uh, with so solemn a text and it seems uh, Exodus and, and the Old Testament is full of such texts. Uh, the people sinning, you angry with the people. Well, we pray that as Paul says, as these things were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. That we would, we would learn the lesson. And that we would learn what it is to fear and to reverence you and to obey you. Uh, Through the preaching, O God, would you bring this closer to home. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, last time we were considering uh, this incident of the golden calf, this famous incident. And and we saw the tragedy of it in in the fact that Moses was on the mountain receiving the instructions. The covenant was, was being brought into effect or it was about to. And... Uh, and he comes down and he finds the people quickly turning aside, as we read in Deuteronomy. They didn't take long to begin to forsake the Lord. And so we find Moses at the end of last time at the bottom of the mountain in the midst of the people uh, and, and, and destroying the calf. But following this, we have 
a series of exchanges. Moses speaking to the people, Moses speaking to Aaron, Moses speaking to the Lord, them responding to him, uh, that very neatly divides the passage uh, actually into nine, uh, nine points. Uh, and, and having seen that, then I will draw certain observations. But beginning with uh, just summary of the passage, looking at each of these points of exchange, the first thing we notice, and this is in itself significant, Moses begins with Aaron. Verse 21, Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? It's noteworthy that he begins with Aaron and not with the people. Because uh, the reason is because Aaron was the leader of the people, obviously, and thus his sin was greater. You, You notice the way Moses frames it. What? What have the people done to you that you have brought this sin upon them? He's dealing with him, again, in his public office as a public person. If we look at Aaron as an individual, we could say that his sin was lesser because he sinned out of weakness. This wasn't his idea. It wasn't even something he wanted. But as a leader, he failed. He gave in to the will of the people and he let them bring him down to their level so that he sinned against them. So as an individual, his sin was lesser, but as a public person, his sin was actually greater. He was sinning against the people. And Moses' words to uh, Aaron in the form of a question is a rebuke. How have you allowed this to happen, Aaron? And Aaron's response is a second point to Moses, which we find in verses 22 through 24, is about a sorry response as you find in, in Scripture. It's nothing but excuses and blame shifting. Calm down, Moses, he says. You know these people are like this. What did you expect? This is one of the commonest tendencies among men. It goes back to the garden, the tendency to blame others. He doesn't blame himself. Moses blames him, but he blames others. I call it blame the other guy. That's what he was doing here. Not only that, but he extenuates and excuses his sin. He says, all I did, Moses, was I asked them to take the rings out of their ears. That was it. He does not own the fact that he crafted the golden calf. And he says something which, as you know, is ridiculous, that the calf just simply came out. Let us be clear, and this, this is obvious, I'm sure, to everyone, that this is not repentance. This falls far short of repentance. And it is a sad picture to see Aaron here, sadder even than in his sin. When he's confronted in his sin, he simply uh, tries to push Moses back. And the real wonder of this passage is that God does not destroy Aaron, of all people. And yet, we do have a clue as to why that was. Going back to Deuteronomy chapter 9, uh, verse 20, the Lord was very angry with Aaron and would have destroyed him. So I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. We get the sense, and it's not surprising, that the only reason Aaron was not killed on that day was because of Moses' intercession and because the Lord wasn't finished with Aaron. But then you notice what Moses' response to Aaron is. Well, there isn't one. Kylan Dillich say something like Moses was so appalled by Aaron's words that he didn't even think they were worthy of a response. And so he says nothing in return. 
But as a fourth point, as the dialogue goes on, he then turns to the people in verses 25 and 26. He finds them unruly or unrestrained or naked, depending on uh, the translation. But the point is, as Moses found the people, he found them out of control. And so what does Moses do as he comes to the people? He doesn't rebuke them. He doesn't call them to repentance, which he had done with Aaron, although he will do that in the aftermath of what's about to happen. But he calls them in this moment to decide. It's a call for decision. Men of Israel, choose to stay whom you will serve. Uh, How does he put it exactly? Whoever is on the Lord's side, he says, come to me. I was anticipating Joshua's later words. He simply says, whoever is on the Lord's side, come to me. That's a highly significant phrase, and I will consider that in a little while. But you notice how in calling the people to the Lord, or calling them at least to decide whose side they were on, he calls them to himself. As the faithful servant of the Lord. And we see who comes. It's the sons of Levi. Which is a little bit interesting to consider. Because Aaron belonged to the sons of Levi. And and, and in some sense. uh, The decision was really before them. More than anyone else. Would they do better than Aaron did? And we see that they do. And so Moses then turns to the sons of Levi. As a fifth point. Verses 27 through 29. And we see here what being on the Lord's side. Will mean. It's an act of consecration, which would be very costly. They were to go through the camp, and it isn't exactly clear what, uh, what Moses is describing to us here. But they were to go through the camp, and they were to slay even their sons and their brothers. And, and the sense is either, I found the commentaries divided on this, and I can't tell you which sense is true, because scripture doesn't tell us. But the sense is either that they went through the camp at random, and 3,000 men fell, or what Matthew Henry says, and I think more likely, is that they, knowing who the most notorious sinners in that episode were, having observed it, they went and they singled those men out and slayed them, even if those men should be their nearest and dearest relations. So it was an act of consecration that was very costly. He, he, he describes it as uh, an act of consecration. Consecrate yourself to the Lord, uh, today to the Lord. But we see that they're faithful to their charge. They go through the camp. 3,000 men fall. Now 3,000 of 600,000. And so it could have been far worse. That is the extent to which the punishment is inflicted on the people for their sin and their rebellion. Well, that's the end of that day. The sixth point is what Moses returns in the aftermath of that to the people to say in verse 30. And here we find the rebuke. He says to them what he said to Aaron earlier, that you've committed a great sin. And he's speaking to the remaining people. And then uh, from there, he speaks. Well, well, let me just say, uh, I, I didn't finish that thought. He rebukes them for their sin with a view towards their repentance. But following that, he speaks of the possibility of atonement as something that's uncertain. Another point that's just worth underlining and reflecting upon, and we'll do that more later. He says to the people, you've committed a great sin, so now I'll go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Perhaps. And then we find when he's praying to the Lord, he says, if twice. He says, if you will forgive their sin. But if not. And so we find him turning to the Lord as the seventh point in verses 31 and 32. And his plea was, 
Lord, will you accept uh, this act of atonement, whatever it was, even if it was just the prayer? We don't read of any sacrifice. But he pleads and he intercedes for the people that the Lord might be merciful. Oh, these people have committed a great sin and made for themselves gods of gold. Yet now, if you will forgive their sin, his interest before the Lord as one who was, uh, who, who was well acquainted and, and, and familiar with the Lord was not in lessening the sin. He didn't say what Aaron said to him. Lord, you know these people. He, he brings the full weight of the sin to the Lord. And doesn't deny its sinfulness. This is great sin, he says. And yet, he says, God, be merciful. And if not, here we have a picture of Moses, uh, as it were, though he wasn't, the high priest. His heart was so bound to the people that if God would not forgive him, then he says, let me perish along with them. Which, in fact, ultimately he does. He does perish along with them in the wilderness, though not because of his unbelief. And so Moses here is a picture of the priests who ever bear the people on his heart. And also, obviously, of Christ. And like these, he knows that sin cannot be forgiven lightly. He feels the weight of sin as he prays. He is aware, that is, of the cost of atonement or redemption. He is affected in his prayer by the weight of their sin. And because of this, he almost wonders... If anything could pay that cost, is it even possible that atonement could be made for a people as sinful as this? But the Lord responds as an eighth point in verses 33 and 34. And this is not the response you would expect. You would expect the Lord says, Moses, I've forgiven the people. But he doesn't say that. He indicates that there are still some who are in his debt. Those who have sinned. He isn't finished with them. But he indicates that there's mercy for others and that most importantly, he hasn't forsaken the nation. Still, he will lead them under the direction of Moses and of the angel. But he also says that he will visit them again with future and further judgments, which does not surprise us because the later history proves that she never really repents, even the remaining people. And as a ninth point, we read in verse 35 simply that the Lord visited them presently with a plague. And so the effect of Moses' intercession is not exactly what we would have thought. It prevailed, but only so far. And the Lord was still angry with his people. And we even later see the Lord becoming angry with Moses. Well, all of that leads me to make uh, these, uh, these seven observations from the text. And I think the thing that stands out most obviously from this text, uh, the phrase even occurs over and over and over again, is the concept of great sin. Not sin, but great sin. And, And everything in this passage points in this direction. The fact that it is stated over and over again. The fact that the Lord visits the people with judgment and having done so, he indicates he's not finished with them. The fact that Moses, in speaking to the people, says perhaps the Lord will forgive your sin. Impressing them with the greatness of their sin. A sin that would not be easily overlooked or pardoned. And so as I say, everything points in this direction. It strongly impresses us with the reality of great sin. And how disruptive this is in our relationship to God. 
And so the effect of this, by way of application, is to remind us that there is such a thing as great sin. I remember as an early uh, as an early convert, someone asking me this, almost like the Pharisees trying to trap me. Are, are all sins the same in the eyes of God? And you know, there's two ways to answer that. In one sense, yes, because all might be pardoned alike by the blood of Jesus. But in the sense of their sinfulness, the answer is certainly no. There is such a thing as great sin. Not all sin is the same in the eyes of God or in the eyes of the law. And much depends within the church upon our willingness and our ability to recognize great sin. We need to be able to see it. We need to be able to define it. And we need, like Moses, to be uh, to, to have the courage in the spiritual discernment to call it out by name, even to someone's face, and the honesty before the Lord to admit it as well. Now, speaking of the church very broadly, not necessarily ourselves, but the church at large, one of the things that you will notice today about the church is not only does she have very little of, uh, uh, of, of any sort of discussion about sin, Uh, But I would go even further. The church today doesn't even know what sin is, let alone great sin. Do Do you realize what Moses says about this? When Moses saw, and now Moses is also the narrator, when Moses saw that the people were unrestrained, for Aaron had not restrained them to their shame among the enemies. Not only did this disrupt their fellowship with one another and with the Lord, but this brought reproach upon the Old Testament church. It was shameful that God's people, of all people, should be behaving this way. But that is what great sin does. It's shameful. But what is great sin? Well, I just said we need to be able to define it. And I think the passage gives us some guidance here. It helps us to understand the things that are deeply important to God and when which transgressed constitute great sin. We could begin by saying simply anything that breaks the Ten Commandments, any obvious and blatant disregard of any of those Ten Commandments is something that is shameful and which the world is apt to notice and which God certainly is apt to notice. But even then, I think we can be more narrow based upon this passage and the full weight of Scripture. The things that are especially grievous to God are the sins which concern him specifically. What we call the first table of the law or the first four commandments. Or I could be even more specific. Perversions of his worship. That's what we have here. God's people worshipping wrongly, worshipping sinfully, worshipping the true God in the form of an image. That's what they were doing. The second commandment they were breaking. These are these things are especially offensive to God. They set us against God rather than for him. They reveal a reckless and a sinful people. When we disregard the first table of the law. But there's an equal emphasis in this passage. On leadership, as a second point, the, that, the, the crucial issue here uh, with respect uh, to Moses and to Aaron was the issue of leadership. The issue of leadership is seen first in Aaron's failed leadership. Again, he blamed the people. He extenuated his sin. He let the people drag him down rather than confronting them and leading them. 
And so Moses, in essence, was just saying, Aaron, how did you let them lead you when you were called to lead them? Especially when what they wanted was sin. It isn't always wrong to listen to the people. But certainly when they're clamoring for sin, that is a time for godly and bold leadership. And we see that in, 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 by way of contrast in Moses. Everything about his response points to his bold and his strong and his courageous leadership. Uh, we even see he speaks of this. We get a sense of this here, but it comes out even more clearly in Deuteronomy when he speaks of being grieved. I, I, I actually want to read that because I don't remember exactly what he says. Uh, well, I can't, I can't remember exactly where it was. At any rate, not only do we see that, but we see uh, his, his boldness, his ability, his willingness to deal with the problem. That's where he shines as a leader. He goes straight to Aaron, and then he goes to the people, and then he goes to the Lord. He's willing to confront the issues that need to be confronted, but he doesn't do so uh, simply on the level of man. As, as, a, as a leader in the church, he also is a man who knows how to pray. He is one who's familiar with God, and he knows how to prevail with God in prayer. He leads by example. That's another thing that we notice. He's not calling people to do what he wasn't doing himself. He was a true worshiper of God, and he was only asking that they would do the same. And so we see on the issue of leadership, in the case of Moses, the faithfulness of the minister. It's a point I keep on making, that Moses is a model of the ministry. And it is seen, again, specifically in his willingness and his courage to call out sin by name, and even to call it great sin. When you think of the differences between Aaron and Moses, that's the point that stands out most clearly. Matthew Henry says the work of ministers is to show people their sins and the greatness of their sins. And so in that, calling them as well to repentance and leading the minister as well in prayer and intercession. That's what the faithful minister does. But the last thing I would say about leadership is this, and we find it at the end, that the reward for Moses is that he gets to lead some more. Leadership is itself the reward He says, now, therefore, go lead the people. That's verse 34. And so the way forward, given where the situation was, uh, according to the Lord, was for strong leadership. That's what the people needed most, especially in this moment. They needed a strong and a godly leader to lead them. And so he says, Moses, you go do that now. But that, that leads me now to the next point, number three, and that is uh, that there are issues which admit no neutrality. Issues which by their very nature require separation, which Moses brings about earlier on. He says again, who's ever on the Lord's side, come to me. And in that act, uh, there was a separation that occurred and as well a decision. There are certain issues which we find in the life of the church, especially when sin is being committed, which represent, uh, as Vody Balkum calls them, fault lines in the church. And, and when you find yourself on a fault line, it is inevitable that you have to decide which side you're on. And if you won't decide, 
Well, the issue will have a way of deciding it for you or at least revealing where you stand. And so there are times when issues arise that force the church to make a decision. And the minister is there, like Moses, to call the church to make it. When the minister says something like, will you go along with me where I am going? Or will you be led by the world? And I would just say that we're living in such days, beloved. There's no way uh, to deny it. There's a reason Vody Balkum wrote his book. We're standing on many fault lines. And there are many decisions that are, uh, or there are many issues that are forcing us to decide. There's really only one decision to make, and that is, whose side are we on? It ought to be clear, beloved, in days like this, who is on the Lord's side. And yet I would lament, sadly, that it isn't clear in many cases. That it's difficult to know anymore who the true Christians are. But as I say, these issues ought to have a way of clarifying. Uh, and so I think the crying, out, crying need of the hour is not just for good and bold leadership, but also that in response to that, that we are making it clear as pressure is being placed upon the Christian every single day to conform to the world and its agenda, who the true followers of God are. And so I'm calling you with Moses. Come to me, follow me, and let us together side with the Lord. But then, as a fourth point, there is also uh, what I would call the way of the church being revealed here. Uh, We have a picture here of how the church is supposed to function, especially when she's standing on a fault line. Her concern at such a time uh, is purity. Purity. You notice what it isn't. It isn't numerical strength. The church doesn't respond to pressures by saying, well, we need to get more people. That is a worldly way of thinking. The church responds to pressures and temptations to sin by pursuing purity. And this comes, you notice, even at the cost or the expense of natural ties. Giving up, as Jesus says, even your father or your brother or your mother for his sake and for the kingdom of God. That's exactly what the Levites were doing. And, uh, and so I would say that the purity of the church comes even before natural ties. We are more concerned that the church should side with the Lord than that, well, our family would like us or something like that. Another way I could put this, uh, and, and, and this is a difficult thing to, to say, but I know that it's true, and that is that the church is often stronger when she appears weaker in the eyes of the world. It's the principle of addition by subtraction. It's not the kind of thing any of us like. But sometimes the church is better off with less people. If the people who are there are true Christians. And they're not so easily deceived and led along by the lies and the sins of the sage. And so do you see how the church was actually strengthened in this way? When the church dealt with the sin. You see it was the church itself that had to deal with the sin. It wasn't some outside force. They had to deal with it. And when they did, well, then they were better off. But this is something that you rarely find in the church today. Few Christians have any stomach for this. Because uh, we always seem to have the notion. And I confess that I'm prone to this. And so I know that you're likely prone to this too. That the church is always strongest when she appears to be strong in numbers. But if you allow numerical strength to become the determining factor, you will never seek purity. I'm not saying, uh, and I've seen this happen too, that we purify the church down to one person and that's the minister. That's not the goal here. But the goal here is to side with the Lord. 
And then siding with the Lord, we see how many people there are. Who's on the Lord's side? Well, we know there will always be more than one, but perhaps not as many as we wish. Now, as a fifth point, and this is just a brief point that we constantly notice here, and that is the fact that the Lord is constantly testing his people. Uh, there is one event after another, after another, after another. And in, in those series and unfolding of events, the Lord is always asking the people uh, to do something. And very often it's something they don't want to do. In the midst of this sin, can you imagine what he asked the Levites to do? What a terrible and a costly and a painful test they were called to. It costs them, as it often costs us in discipleship, near and dear relations. And the question uh, that we face is, will we pass the test? Will we be faithful when God calls us to be faithful, even at personal cost to ourselves? But then as a sixth point, we also notice the way sin changes things. That's one of the things that we can't help but notice as the whole event unfolds and, and ultimately concludes. This is something actually that a true repentance will accept. That if I commit a great sin, even if God should spare me and pardon me, that things will not be the same. Another way to put this is that sin is costly. It costs the Son of God his own dear blood. Do you think it will cost you nothing? Especially great sin. Your sin might may be pardoned, but even then, you can't just take it back and pretend it never happened. Things are bound to change, and that's what we find here. Things are beginning to change in the life of Israel. Sin was disrupting and changing the course of her life. But the last point that I would notice is the weakness of the Old Covenant, and especially of its intercessor, Moses. Moses, we see, could do much, but sometimes we're apt to make too much of what he could do. What really strikes me about this passage is what he couldn't do. Moses could continue the covenant. He could defer the wrath of God a little. He could plead mercy for those who hadn't sinned with a high hand, but not for those who had. But he could do no more. He couldn't even get to the promised land himself, let alone lead the people there. As his fate was bound to theirs, he would perish along with them. And so from the standpoint of what I'm describing, it is true that he was faithful, but I would also say that ultimately he failed and that he was meant to fail. But there is one who can succeed where Moses failed in every way and who is beset by no such weakness. One who would rather, like Moses, die than see the people perish, yet who was not prevented by death from continuing in his priesthood, nor from entering into the promised rest. One who was able by a single offering to put away sin once for all and for, forever extinguish the wrath of God for the elect. One whose intercession continually and everlastingly prevails with God. Notice, there are no ifs when he prays. His prayers are always guided by the certainty of the divine will and love. So he is one too upon whom the love of the Father rests eternally and always. One whose prayers are always answered with yes and amen. There is no need for him to adjust his prayers and his will to that of the Father, like Moses. They stand together as one, always in agreement, always committed to the same thing and the same end, always accomplishing the same thing, which is the salvation of those whom he bears on his heart and his body. 
He opens the book of life before the father and he finds those whom the father loves and those whom he loves and saves and always lives to make intercession for before the throne of grace. And those for whom he always lives to help and offer grace in time of need. I'm, of course, describing Jesus Christ. This beloved is your great high priest and intercessor and mediator. It is he whom God the Father has called to lead you on to the promised rest, which is heaven. It is he whom God has appointed as your head and leader and who has gone before you into heaven and is leading you there even now. And so my message to you in light of this passage is this. Do not read of Moses' failures and share his uncertainty as to whether such things can be done. I tell you, sin can be pardoned. And the cost of atonement can be paid in full. And it has. So too are you able to enter into the promised rest, which is heaven, if only you keep Jesus as your guide. If ever you should grow weary or discouraged, always think of him, as the writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And let me read those verses. Therefore, also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you should become weary and discouraged in your souls. And doesn't he say the same thing in chapter 3, comparing Christ to Moses? Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our confession, Christ Jesus. And so let us follow him even until the end, where he is calling us. And never grow weary or lose heart, for we follow one who did not perish in the wilderness along with the people. But one who is able, the writer to the Hebrews tells us, and every honest Christian knows, to save us to the uttermost. Consider him always, but especially in times of testing and trial. And even in such times when you succumb and fall into great sin as the people did there. It is at such a moment that you need Jesus most. And you need to heed the admonitions of the book of Hebrews. Consider not Moses, but Christ. What he has done, where he has gone, and where he is calling you. Always remember that he is able to save and to pardon and to help. You will not fall or perish so long as he is your guide. Amen. And let us return our praise to him as our great high priest in singing uh, the hymn 223. Arise, my soul, arise and pray.